wonder if there doesn't have to be some kind of government mandate to uh, 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 enforce with subpoenas to uh, be sure that the data you're getting uh, is actual data that uh, the companies will stand behind. Well, uh, then you're aligned with French regulators. Um, who, oh, who have... my God. Oh, you really you know how to hurt me, Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's there's a really interesting proposal out of France. I, I don't think it's getting much political traction. Welcome to Episode 302 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we express here today do not reflect the opinions of our clients, our institutions, our family members, or, frankly, our pets. Uh, uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Daphne Keller. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Daphne is one of the great practical and legal experts on content moderation. I always learn something when I uh, read her stuff. Uh, we'll be talking to her about uh, uh, some uh, content moderation and uh, uh, platform censorship issues uh, uh, and what to do about it. Uh, so Daphne, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I, I should have said, uh, you're um, a non-residential fellow at the Stanford Law School Center for Internet and Society. What does it mean, non-residential? You don't even have to show up? <laughs> well, I am in San Francisco today. Uh, I was the director of intermediary liability at CIS until very recently, and now I'm starting up a new project called the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Oh, okay. All right. And you used to be with Google, if I remember right, doing this kind of content moderation law. That's right. I was there for 10 years. I was an associate general counsel looking at these same questions. When do platforms have to take down speech and what's a smart way to set up those laws? Okay. Well, we're, I'm really, really looking forward to that. But first, the news roundup, we're going to have Matthew Hyman uh, from the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division at DOJ. Matthew, welcome. Great to be here, Stuart. Uh, Mark McCarthy, who's an adjunct professor and senior fellow, uh, but apparently not a non-resident senior fellow. So you actually do have to show up at the Institute for Law and Policy at Georgetown. Thanks for having me. But, you know, I'm actually officially a non-resident fellow. I just cut that out to uh -huh. avoid embarrassing questions like yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I, I apologize for uh, having embarrassed you. Uh, Nick Weaver is also with us. Uh, he's a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. Uh, I, and uh, Nick, as far as I can tell, you actually do show up every, every day at Berkeley. Most days, yes, until COVID-19 causes us to cancel classes. All right. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Before I get started, uh, I wanted to uh, get feedback from our listeners. We have been asking the question, should we do the news roundup uh, separately from the interviews and release the interviews so people can just say, you know, I'm, I, I missed uh, uh, the last three weeks. I don't need to listen to the news roundups, but I do want to uh, pick up one or more of these uh, interviews. Uh, um, uh, many, many of you will remember the uh, comments that were filed uh, by somebody who misgendered me uh, complaining that he had to wait a long time uh, uh, to get to uh, one of the interviews. He was... He felt we misrepresented ourselves. Uh, I, and uh, so I, it occurred to me maybe we should offer people that opportunity. You can vote on that. Uh, we've got a bunch of votes. Uh, right now the votes are 
uh, trending against the idea of separating the uh, interview from the news roundup. So if you feel strongly one way or the other, you ought to vote. And to do that, you go to steptoe.com slash podcast poll, one word, podcast poll, uh, and vote there. I think the news of the week sort of weird because uh, it's something that hasn't happened and may not is what's going to happen to Pfizer renewal. March 15 is the deadline for renewing several Pfizer programs. Uh, um, and as always, it's perils of Pauline time. Uh, uh, Matthew, what's the uh, what, what's the uh, the set of issues at mm-hmm. stake here? So there are three provisions under FISA that are set to expire on March 15th. And for those of you that follow this issue, you know they were originally set to expire December 15th of last year. But through some machinations and just Congress not having the time to fully address it, they gave, bought themselves 90 days and they said the new deadline's March 15th. And the three provisions are all around what some people call Section 215. They originated out of the Patriot Act, were amended through the Freedom Act. And there are these three things. Uh, FBI's ability to collect business records under Section 215. The FBI's ability to obtain roving wiretaps over targets. So if a target switches cell phones or email addresses, they can continue to monitor them. And the third is the lone wolf provision. So which those, is, of, of, of those three, the, lo- the lone wolf provision is uh, kind of tied back to Masawi uh, in the sense that uh, there were some real threats arising around 9-11 that, where we couldn't actually tie him to a particular terrorist group, but he sure looked like a terrorist to us. Uh, and we, it hasn't been much used, uh, but it's probably something that would be valuable to hang on to, especially now that we've seen more and more lone wolves. Uh, yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of controversy about it, uh, other than the fact that it hasn't been used. And then uh, roving wiretaps is absolutely essential in an age when people can move from phone to phone so easily. Uh, and there's no controversy about that. And there's a criminal law analog for exactly. that as well. Uh, and, and there's not really much controversy about the idea that uh, the uh, 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 national security authorities ought to be able to get the same kind of business records that law enforcement can get. Right. Um, but the um, Section 215 of business records mm-hmm. has gotten tied up with the call detail record right. uh, program. What? Uh, What's the that, – that's a long and, and mm. that sort of fraught chapter. Uh, so, but I, if you can give people a quick yeah. overview, that would be good. So the quick and dirty version of the call detail record story, as you may recall, after uh, – during the Bush administration in 2005, 2006, a program was set up to collect uh, significant amounts of telephone metadata to figure out who's talking to whom and what does that mean and how, what are the connections. That was all then revealed through the Snowden leaks. Actually, it was revealed through New York Times reporting and then Snowden further revealed it. Ultimately, there were amendments made to the U.S. Patriot Act that allowed for this to be brought under the auspices of FISA. And so the court then began approving these under statute as opposed to approving them based on DOJ lawyers' interpretation of the law. Then 
there was a further amendment under, I believe, USA Freedom Act that said, whoa, 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 we don't want NSA to have all this stuff in their data warehouse. We're going to have it set up that the phone companies and the ISPs have to collect this in their data warehouses, and the NSA can ask them for these batches from time to time. So this was this was the big scandal of like two or three years ago, uh, and uh, I think we owe it mainly to the Freedom Caucus right. Republicans uh, who said it's shocking that the government should have this data, um, and yeah. they proposed a solution that said, no, leave the data with the companies, right. and, and uh, you can do the same searches, but you have to search it in the data that is provide that is held by the uh, companies. Right. Um, well, brilliant solution, total collapse uh, in practice. I, I, to put it another way, they came up with an unworkable regime that proved to be unworkable. Yeah, yeah, and expensive. Right. Um, and and the PCOB has written uh, a, a report saying, uh, gee, it was really expensive and it was mm -hmm. very hard to make work without compliance problems. And finally, NSA gave up on it. Um, and this is treated as some justification for further screwing mm -hmm. around in this area uh, by people who know nothing and are making decisions at the last minute about how to solve these problems. Uh, it, it, and it's a recipe for more trouble. It is, and I, to, you know, and to be fair, there are two streams intersecting here, right? So there's there's reporting about this call data records program and its utility and whether or not it was workable, and then there's the Carter Page FISA applications that were the subject of the IG report. Of course, as most of our listeners, I'm sure know, these two fifteen provisions have nothing to do with what went wrong with Carter Page. But it's a, there's a four letter word in common, FISA. Exactly, and so a lot of um, FISA critics. Uh, are using that club as an argument to say, oh, we need to reform all of FISA and the FBI and the intelligence communities run amok and this is just out awful and Americans' civil liberties are being violated, which I think is largely, almost entirely overblown rhetoric. Yeah, but it, uh, the the, the politics of this are that uh, neither conservative Republicans nor liberal Democrats mm -hmm. uh, feel any obligation to salvage this program. Uh, if there's a, a, a problem catching terrorists, they're not going to get blamed anyway. Uh, right. They didn't get blamed for having created this unworkable and expensive program that failed. Uh, and so why should they be blamed the next time? Exactly right. There is a lone figure that's advocating for the status quo, and that's the Attorney General Bill Barr. It's not even clear that the president's with him on this. Exactly. Nick, you read the PCLAB report on this that talks about uh, uh, the program and is a pretty good overview of the last several years uh, uh, of its functioning or uh, quasi-functioning. Uh, um, uh, you draw any other lessons from this? Yes. First of all, I have a bad feeling that it's going to disrupt all of Section 215, which is used for a lot more than just phone records. Right. That would be bad. But I think it's, it's important to remember the phone records program started out with the U.S. government insisting that relevant meant every call record on everybody, which seems a bit of a stretch. Well, that, you know, that's your legal interpretation. But I, in fact, the only way you're going to make this work in a, a, a disciplined way is to collect all of them, clean them up, put them in a single database and search them in a responsible fashion. That's what they were yes. doing. And that's what the, 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 the relevance, the, the 
data that they found relevant is the stuff they actually searched for. Right. They collected all this stuff, cleaned it up, and stored it without searching it. And then they searched for relevant data. They probably did 40 or 50 searches a year on particular numbers where they clearly had relevance. And so that's a good argument, except for one minor problem of that database in government hands does give a lot of people willies for good reason. You give me access to the call detail records, and I'll tell you which Republican senators' mistresses got abortions. Um, it's very easy to misuse, and so it scared a lot of people. So the solution was to go with uh, the system we use for guns, basically. So there is no registry of who owns what gun in the U.S., Instead, what happens when the police want to find a gun, is, find out about the history of a gun, is they contact the manufacturer who has to keep the records, who contacts the dealer who has to keep all the records, and basically distribute the data. thing is, is what the PCLOP showed is twofold. First of all, the distribution of the data was not effective because the data providers would give garbage. Right, because right. they, they didn't know what, what they were supposed to be producing or they didn't care very much. Uh, so there were a lot of errors and the errors infected the database in a way that uh, couldn't be cured uh, on NSA's end. And the program itself ended up not being useful even when the data was correct, that um, the number of unique reports is very low for a $100 million program. The problem is, actually, is that the NSA doesn't actually want to let the authority drop, even though they've given up on it. They stopped using it about a year ago because of these data problems. Yeah. And the reason that the NSA doesn't want to give up the authority is because there may still be value in the program if they can figure out a workable way to set it up. They can have a technological solution to the obstacles they're facing. So, I'm not surprised. In fact, I'm pleased that NSA doesn't want to give it up because if 18 months from now they figure out a technical fix that allows this program to work more efficiently, more effectively, more cheaply, you don't want to have to go back to Congress and say, mother may I, for reinstituting this authority that's expired needlessly. So I'm I'm I you know I'm going to let my bleeding heart uh, show here right <laughs> uh, in a in a rare instance uh, I actually wonder whether this program will ever be useful as originally envisioned. In 2002, if you wanted to figure out I mean the, the whole idea was suppose people came here and did what the 9/11 hijackers did, which is right. to come here with a plan and then start talking to each other and occasionally talk back to the mothership in uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, and we catch them no. talking to Afghanistan, and then we want to know, this guy is is in the United States. Who else is he talking to? He's, who, who is he planning the attack with? Um, you want his social graph in a hell of a hurry. Um, but you know, you're not going to get his social graph anymore uh, uh, from just looking at his phone call records. The, that might have been true in 2002. It's not true in, in an age of WhatsApp and Facebook and the like. You really have to expand the program for it to carry out the task it was originally assigned. The other issue is this notion of two-hop, three-hop, that 
you're probably actually going to get most of the valuable things from examining in detail the one hop and then getting one hop off those hops rather than get it all in bulk anyway. So that you can do under existing authorities trivially. Yeah, but uh, going back to the well over and over again to get hop after hop from uh, uh, from these uh, uh, providers – probably just increases the opportunity for error. That's that's why they wanted to have a single place where they could they could do it quickly and uh, in a way that they were sure wasn't going to produce uh, more evidence, more information than the government needed or was supposed to have. Yeah. And I, th- I think the proof is in the pudding because the way the program operated prior to the kind of Rube Goldberg setup where the data was housed by the providers um, it, the program actually worked more effectively, efficiently, and, and there probably was greater compliance than post the reform where the, the providers held it and they were giving – it was a garbage in, garbage out process. So uh, the, the status as things stand is that uh, there's talk and grumbling and uh, outrage at being expressed at the idea that the, the deadline might be kicked again, yeah. although it would make sense. Uh, uh, yeah. we, we probably want to hear from Durham uh, if yeah. we're trying to deal with uh, abuses of FISA generally. Right. The idea for kicking it, unfortunately, apparently comes from uh, Democratic leadership mm-hmm. uh, and the idea is uh, attach a further extension to the coronavirus funding bill, um, which is surely going to pass. Uh, that may still happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Mitch McConnell thought that was a good idea. Um, and then everybody gets to grumble but vote for it anyway. Alternative is the House has been working on a uh, a so-called compromise bill that has a whole bunch of kind of uh, niggling privacy uh, uh, additions meant not to totally screw up. Uh, FISA, but to create a lot of um, uh, FISA um, friction. Uh, you know, friction. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, that was considered by Zoe Lofgren, who I think is uh, the number two uh, Democrat on judiciary, as insufficient. She hasn't said what else she wants, but she has said she won't buy that. Uh, uh, and so the effort to produce a quick compromise bill is failing. That might actually be why um, House leadership is comfortable pushing it or wants to push it. Although, I, you know, when are we going to push it to? You're going to push it to, oh, I don't know, October? Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, or maybe December when we might have a uh, um, a, a, a new transition uh, and that we'll be putting you know, a, a different president on the hook. Uh, it, it, there's no good time to, uh, to decide this. Although, let's face it, National Cupcake Day is better than the Ides of March for these sorts of delays. <laughs> okay. Well, that, uh, let's let's hope for National Cupcake Day. All right, Mark. You know it's uh, uh, March, and therefore there are new AI ethics principles floating around, including one prepared by the Vatican. Uh, uh, what can we learn from all of this AI ethics? So uh, March is my birthday. So here's a flood of AI ethics principles, which is great. Uh, so a defense department, uh, they, they did a, a, an endorsement of the ethical principles that were recommended by the Defense Innovation Board last October. 
And, and these principles, they sound pretty general. You know, it's um, yes. traceability, reliability, governability, but they in fact deal with pretty key issues. And uh, for example, uh, at the meeting of the board last October at, at Georgetown, they, they, they debated whether humans should be able to turn off weapon systems even after they've been activated. And, and they decided that would defeat the purpose of many of these AI weapons. But they said, look, you've got to have an off switch, even if it's operated automatically, like one of those circuit breakers mm -hmm. that uh, operates for algorithmic trading software. Uh, and, and, that, and that principle sort of got adopted in the governability principle, where they said the department will design and engineer AI capabilities with the ability to disengage or deactivate deployed systems that demonstrate unintended behavior. That's pretty good, actually. Well, that, 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 that's sort of common sense, right? If it's it starts doing sense. something you did not intend, right. then uh, you want to turn it off. Uh, but that strikes me as how do you know it's doing something unintended? Though that, that's an engineering decision that I think we need to watch what the Defense Department does in its uh, decisions to engineer and to and to manage these weapon systems, but they got the principle right at least. Yeah, right? I, I I have to say both of these principles. I I, I now have a, a rule for examining AI ethical principles. I type in Control F bias, and if I find <laughs> that they have a principle saying, "Oh, we can't have bias," uh, I say they're crap. Uh, uh, that's uh, that is a completely unthought through statement, uh, and um, if it means what it says, probably is a uh, recipe for producing a whole host of uh, um, uh, quotas, including in this case, I guess, quotas on uh, uh, the various uh, uh, genders and races that uh, your AI uh, weapons kill. It's all just political correctness to talk about bias in this context. Uh, uh, the other things, transparency, explainability, uh, um, governability, those all make some sense, but this one makes almost no sense to me. So the, the other development was that uh, AI ethics uh, came for the Pope. Yes. Uh, and uh, probably not infallibly because this is not a matter of Catholic faith or morals. But the paper is actually pretty thoughtful. Um, it, it sounds like, once again, empty abstract principles, transparency, And control inclusion. F bias produces a result. Uh, but, but in fact, it focuses pretty, pretty laser-like on some hot topics. For instance, he wants to go beyond regulating AI systems like machine learning and focus on all algorithmic decision systems, which is a, a key discussion point right now. And he wants to focus the regulation in this area where there's a real risk of harm to people. He says the new regulations, especially for advanced technologies that have a higher risk of impacting human rights, such as facial recognition. So he, he's not on board for this one-size-fits-all regulation of AI, which is where the EU is and mm -hmm. where the United States is. And, and the fact that, that Microsoft and IBM are on board for this suggests that the tech community is no longer really opposed to regulation in this area. It just has to be the kind of regulation that they think makes, makes sense. So I, I, the one thing that I'm struck by is the state, statements that there has, it has to be explainable, can't do unintended things, They're completely inconsistent with, with my understanding of how machine learning works today. We have no idea exactly how they've arrived at the uh, decision that they arrive at. It's just that they've done it in a way that seems to work out better than any other mechanism. And if we insist on the, uh, an explanation right now, we're not going to get anything. So, so the, the key thing that both 
the EU and the U.S. have done in that area is kick those kind of detailed questions to specific regulators, to sector-specific regulators, uh, and said, this is something that you guys have to figure out in your area of responsibility. And uh, the other thing that happened this, this week is uh, some former secretaries of defense said, we have to have the the U.S. take leadership in setting the rules of the road for AI. But in fact, the, the EU, with their EU white paper on, on AI, uh, has taken the lead there. And if, if the past is any prologue, GDPR, content moderation decisions, they'll use access to the large European market as a lever to force their principles to be adopted worldwide, which doesn't mean the, the authoritarians win because these are respectful of human rights, perhaps to a fault, but it means probably that the real decision worldwide is going to be between the European approach and the Chinese approach with the U.S. once again left on the sidelines. Yes, uh, uh, quite possibly. We'll talk about that when Daphne uh, uh, comes on because uh, that's a problem in the, the area of First Amendment values as well. Uh, China, apart from the coronavirus, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, what's the news, uh, the cyber news from China? Well, uh, the, the first story is the fact that, shockingly, China is censoring people that use Twitter and other uh, mobile platforms to try and get further information or broadcast information about the coronavirus because Chinese nationals uh, feel like they're not getting the truth from their national or local governments, and they're probably not. And so they're using VPNs to access these things. And when they do, they all of a sudden fig figure out that they're being monitored by the Chinese. There's a story about one individual who traveled to San Francisco and all of a sudden his friends started texting him saying, what hotel are you staying in? What room are you staying in? Where are you going? And he felt like his friends had all been rounded up and the security services had put them up to sending him these messages. And so it's just China being China, which is a paranoid, tyrannical regime. Although that, it's, what's, what's interesting is that the, uh, Twitter's not accessible inside right. China. So now they're they're going after people who post on media that is not generally accessible right. in China uh, as a way of controlling this separate leaky uh, yes. uh, firewall. Yeah. And I think I think the Chinese government understands that savvy people use VPNs to try and get better sources of information and they're trying to clamp down on that. So um, it's it's just it's more of the same. All right. So I, uh, Dmitry Alperovich, who's been mm -hmm. on this program before, uh, had an interesting story saying, uh, 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 claiming the, the story uh, quotes him a lot, that uh, the Chinese actually have been deterred by our naming and shaming and indicting uh, program. Uh, did you think that was persuasive? No. Uh, so I maybe I read the story a little differently than you. I think what what I read Dimitri to be saying is the PLA, the People's Liberation Army or People's – I yeah. don't know what that stands for. Yeah. Um, is not front and center on these cyber attacks. It's moved to the security services. Yeah, the MSS. Uh, and so I think what Dimitri is saying, the, the kind and nature of hacking and cyber uh, bad acting that you typically saw with the PLA has tailed off in the wake of those indictments, and it's now the MSS that's sort of orchestrating these things, and they're doing it differently. But so it's, it, it, what, our naming and shaming right. changed the terms of a turf battle inside China between the PLA and the Ministry of State Security, uh, uh, and we embarrassed the PLA. We made them look like doofuses, right. uh, uh, and uh, uh, and maybe like they were 
moonlighting for industry mm-hmm. uh, uh, leaders to steal information that the state didn't want, but which some private sector party was willing to pay for, uh, and as a way of establishing his control over the PLA, she decided yeah. to come down on the PLA for corruption. Right. Under the guise of corruption, he took out a bunch of leadership in the PLA. So I think the cyber uh, bad acting has just moved to another department. So I think, you know, to use it a, a well-worn term, we whacked one mole and we have a new one that's popped up. All right. And meanwhile, we're still whacking moles, right? <laughs> so uh, the, the, we've got uh, uh, a Chinese national sentenced for stealing trade secrets uh, uh, worth maybe a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of attention focused on what the Chinese military is doing to sponsor research or extract yeah. research from U.S. Uh, universities. Yeah, there was an a interesting story in the Wall Street Journal about a woman that had uh, applied for a, a fellowship sort of research position with a, you know, a, a very well-regarded scholar at Boston, I think, and I, I apologize to alums, it's either Boston University or Boston College. I always confuse them because I didn't go to school in Massachusetts. Um, but in any event, she worked for him. They published well, a paper together. you could have gone together. to Harvard. They, yeah. don't, they don't notice at all, anybody. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Uh, but they published a paper together, and it later came out that she was a lieutenant in the PLA. And the, the issue here is unclassified research um, that, you know, is in a bunch of areas that are really important to the PLA. And should Chinese nationals that are uh, associated with the PLA be able to come and work with academics in the U.S. and other parts of the world? And and I would love to get feedback made from Mark and Nick on this. My sense is the academy probably looks at this with two minds, either indifference, gullibility, or a sense that we're not really interested in U.S. national security. We're interested in science and we'll work with whoever you know helps us push that frontier. I, but – that, that was yeah, certainly the all, sense you got all, from the scholar. All that scholar. goes into the mix with a heavy dollop of we really want the money. Well, that that's the other piece of it, right, is they – you know, a lot of these uh, researchers come with very enticing offers to underwrite a lot of this research and I know that's appealing to scholars. So the, the, the U.S. – the uh, Justice Department has started mm-hmm. really pushing on this, yeah. uh, uh, indicting uh, yeah. the Professor Lieber uh, for lying about his connections to the Thousand Talents program yeah. and uh, – I noticed the education department uh, has sent out notices to people, uh, including Harvard and Yale, saying, uh, excuse me, but you're supposed to be disclosing all your foreign Mm -hmm. uh, uh, grants, and we don't see a lot of disclosure here. Um, And NIH and I think uh, other parts of the government already have grant conditions saying you have to tell us who else is paying you in this area. Um, And uh, most of those things have been you know, paperwork requirements, and now there's serious compliance issues, and I think we're going to see more stuff come to light. Yeah, I think similar to the way the um, you know the f- the FARA uh, uh, fallout from you right. know agents of uh, foreign powers, where all of a sudden people started enforcing that and taking notice because they had these concerns. And look, if I I have a certain amount of respect for the Chinese because if you're looking at soft targets in the U.S. that have valuable information that you could get. American universities, which are the best in the world, is a great place to go and try and um, access that because it's pretty wide open. Yep. Uh, And uh, one of the things is that the feds have been going after the most blatant cases. So Lieber, the charge may just be lying on the current and pending and stuff like that. 
But his behavior was pretty aggressively egregious, including using Harvard's name to set up a Harvard Wuhan lab that Harvard didn't actually even know about and stuff like that. See, if he if he if he called it the Boston University Wuhan lab, Harvard never would have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, uh, uh, Nick, uh, Clearview uh, continues to, to, to fall into more and more trouble. Uh, uh, they've been hacked. Uh, they've lost the ability to distribute their app that is being used by a bunch of people uh, uh, on uh, both uh, Android and Apple platforms. What is uh, How bad is this for Clearview? Deliciously bad because – these are classic Silicon Valley tech bro attitude of we're just going to do it and sod the rules. So we now know where they're getting their data, basically mass scraping from everywhere, including people who scrape Instagram. So you've got this huge data feed going in. Their customer list was quote unquote hacked yet not a vulnerability. Translation, they probably had an insecure Amazon S3 bucket that had everybody's information lying around. Just like everybody else. Their app got pulled um, from by Apple because they were sideloading it with a developer certificate, and this was found out because it was captured from an insecure S3 bucket, because of course it was. They're basically getting beaten up mostly out of their own incompetence, that they clearly didn't bother actually thinking how to secure the system. Thanks to California law, you can find out how they're getting their data. You just send a photo and ask, and you see they're doing a lot of web scraping. And frankly speaking, their tech bro attitude, this is what happens. Well, it's also true that the people who could do this right, the, the big platforms, have just been scared off by the um, toxification of uh, facial recognition. That, um, a, and uh, uh, so what you have is somebody who's a mouse among the elephants um, uh, trying to see if they can't uh, take advantage of the niche that the elephants won't occupy. Uh, so it's not a surprise that, that it's a slightly – shaky code base or uh, cybersecurity regime. The uh, There's a lot of internet shutdowns uh, uh, going on. Some of it uh, uh, government-sponsored, and some in some cases, uh, we've got big Silicon Valley firms banding together, threatening to cut off their services. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, is this a trend for the future? I, I think this, uh, this threat uh, by a group of U.S. technology companies, uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, really did succeed in forcing Pakistan to back off of their latest effort at content control. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's not really new. It was really at the heart of what the Global Network Initiative was about back in 2008, but they, they never really came together as an economic force. This new group might be effective in ways where GNI was not, but of course, you know, economic pressure is much more effective against smaller countries than against bigger countries, and it's unthinkable to use it in uh, against a, 
an organization like the European Union, e- even though they're growing in the in the area of content well, so regulation. You, you, you get a competition investigation you certainly the would. next day. Group group boycotts have a have a history in the in the competition policy world, and that that kind of economic pressure would be ineffective against our strategic. Uh, opponents because they saw this coming a long time ago and and China and Iran and Russia have developed the capacity to run their own internets themselves. But I think one message from the Pakistan boycott might might be for other countries who want to run their internet as they see fit, they may, may need to develop the infrastructure to control their own internet well, if they want to insist that? on that. You, 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 you buy 5G and then you invite uh, all the social media platforms from China uh, plus TikTok uh, to set up inside your country. Uh, and then you tell uh, all the American companies that uh, said they were going to boycott you, yep, Go ahead. boycott away. And, and what this means is that the, the pressure on the, on the fragmentation of the internet is only going to increase. Oh, yeah. The, 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 that ship has sailed. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, quick hits. Um, it turns out, uh, uh, you know, to no one's surprise except apparently the police, that if if you take a GPS tracking device that they've attached to your car off your car and take it into your house to see what the hell it is, that's not theft. And the courts have ruled that. And therefore, it doesn't justify a search warrant uh, to go looking for it. Uh, um it also turns out that uh, uh, there is no way to secure your your Bitcoin uh, uh, gains. Uh, uh, if you keep it online, it'll be stolen. And if you write it down uh, and hide it in your fishing gear, um, when you're arrested, your fishing gear is going to go to the dump and that's the last you'll see of it. Uh, Nick, uh, uh, is there anything else to that story? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he actually has a backup copy someplace else, and this is just to keep the cops from taking his take. It's $53 million. You can see why he might uh, think it was worth spending a little time in jail uh, and uh, uh, then coming out and collecting it. They say that nobody has spent on any of it, but of course, you wouldn't expect him to spend it until he's free. All right, West Virginia. Uh, here's a here's a uh, feel good story. West Virginia, which was going to use the, the totally insecure app Votes, uh, rhymes with spelled like goats, uh, uh, a, for. Uh, voting in uh, an upcoming election uh, has decided maybe not. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, is this truly good news? <laughs> the only truly good news is when votes goes the way of the dead goats. <laughs> okay, and the FCC is has has apparently decided to tag practically every large uh, uh, cell carrier with liability for continuing to provide uh, data on location to third parties. Uh, Now, there's plenty of third parties who ought to get that uh, data. Uh, um, So the idea that you would say we're going to tag you for providing third-party location data um, uh, no matter who you provide it to strikes me as an overreaction. But it may be that that's what's going to happen because the carriers said, oh, yeah, we're going to stop that. When what they probably should have said is we're going to stop the stuff that drives people crazy. Uh, uh, but if there's a legitimate reason for law enforcement purposes uh, and the like, we are going to continue to provide it. But we don't know the details and it'll be a while before we find out. All right. Now, at last, we're going to talk to Daphne Keller 
I've uh, talked about her background uh, uh, at the Stan at Stanford uh, Law and Internet and Society Center for Internet and Society, but she's not there anymore. What is the the name of your new organization, Daphne? I'm at the Cyber Policy Center, which is where Alex Stamos and Nate Persily, Renee DiResta, Maricha Shaka, uh, lately of the European Parliament, a lot of amazing people there. So I'm, I'm excited to start working with them. So I thought that was the Cyber Observatory. Is, is that a, a, a yet another cyber thing? That... <laughs> I, I can describe the org chart for you, but we'd be here a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, but I, I assume it has to do a lot with where the money comes from. Uh, um, so the paper I wanted to talk to you most about, you've done some some nice work uh, in a couple of areas, but the paper that I thought was most interesting, especially as we're talking about Section 230, uh, and I, I'm, I've been expressing concerns about uh, large platform censorship of users, is uh, the uh, entitled, Who Do You Sue? State and Platform Hybrid Power Over Online Speech. Uh, um, and I think the the first question that that I'd like to ask you, uh, uh, Daphne, is uh, uh, I, uh, I get into this because I'm worried about uh, bias in uh, the moderation policies, the decisions about who gets to speak, who gets uh, uh, demonetized, who gets uh, shadow banned, uh, uh, who gets outright ejected from the platform for things that they've said. I worry a lot uh, as a conservative that those decisions are heavily influenced by Silicon Valley's left-leaning uh, in inclinations. Uh, so let me start just by asking you, uh, uh, do you think that there are is bias in content moderation? Well, I think people are right to be worried, but I actually don't think this is particularly a conservative issue. Like, I think it's a fluke of our political moment that this concern is associated with the political right. And that's certainly who gets attention in, in the media. Um, but the exact same concern is raised by Black Lives Matter activists, for example, who say that they've been excluded unfairly or LGBTQ people. And in Brazil, it came up as an indigenous rights issue and actually went to a regional human rights body. So everyone across the political spectrum, you know, A, thinks that they're the victim of bias and moderation and B, might be right. <laughs> yes. no, nobody knows. Nobody has the data. And so until we have better transparency about what's going on, we're going to continue to have sort of, you know, anecdote-based responses and potentially anecdote-based government responses, uh, which is not so smart. It would be much better if we could figure out what's really going on before we make any laws. So I agree with you. I think this is, this is a uh, high-profile issue now because uh, we've lost trust in our Silicon Valley masters. Uh, we no longer think that they are going to uh, um, be motivated to provide the best possible experience and not to impose their uh, political or social values uh, uh, on uh, users. Um, and as you kind of were hinting, some kind of transparency into how those dis moderation decisions get made is – a about the only nonpartisan solution that comes up frequently in this area. Yeah, and I think this is a question. So part of the point of the paper is we should be worrying about private power and government power both at the same time because 
governments we're seeing around the world are able to bypass constitutional limits on their own power or human rights limits on their own power by deputizing private platforms and saying, hey, you go out and do the censorship or you go out and do the surveillance. And by the same token, we see platforms taking on and displacing traditional state functions like operating the equivalent of the public square or the post office or the currency system. And, and so we should really be thinking about um, both how private power is shaping what we see in the so-called modern public square and how private companies like platforms kind of become vectors for state power, for governments to come along and say, hey, you know, <laughs> we'd like you to do this. And if you don't do it, we might pass some law and you're really not going to like it, which which is what's happening quite a bit around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Transparency into that both into what platforms are doing and what governments are doing would be a huge step forward. Yeah, so there's a Pareto optimal solution for both the platforms and governments uh, that just leaves free speech values out in the cold right? uh, because the government is happy if the stuff it hates is suppressed uh, and it doesn't care that a lot of other stuff is suppressed uh, and the platforms by and large uh, uh, are happy as long as they are satisfying the government's demand and they don't care too much uh, if they overachieve. Uh, and squelch a lot of speech that uh, nobody really wants to squelch, but uh, doesn't don't care about particularly. Yeah, I, I think that you know the public loses out, or individual internet users lose out, if the rules are a product of some behind closed doors negotiation between government and platforms or an implicit negotiation where platforms are just like, oh, we see regulation coming, we're going to preemptively apply or preemptively comply rather. Um, so that's, it's absolutely a problem because it's a sort of negotiation between governments and platforms that, that leaves everybody else out. On the other hand, a lot of the things that governments are asking for, like that European governments are asking for, uh, a lot of the public actually wants. You know, European governments are telling platforms, take down um, violent extremism, content that is First Amendment protected, but that most people don't want to see in their Facebook feed. You know, take down racial epithets, take down, um, you know, encouragement of suicide. There's really awful, awful content out there that is First Amendment protected, um, but that users don't want to see in their social media feed. Advertisers don't want to have their ads next to in a social media feed. So in, in a lot of ways, the market and customer demand does align with things that governments are asking for, even though they're things the First Amendment wouldn't permit the government to go out and make a law against. Well, but let's get real. We're talking about Europe here. They don't want to see Donald Trump in their social media feed either. Uh, and they would be delighted uh, uh, with a, um, uh, a social media universe in which Trump and everybody who agrees with them just shut up and went back to uh, working minimum wage jobs for them. Well, I mean, it's interesting. It, it depends which Europeans you're talking about, obviously. And we've seen a couple of cases uh, out of Germany and Poland where Facebook took down pages from, I, I think in both cases, it was far right, either individuals or political parties, um, and courts ordered Facebook to reinstate it. 
And they said, even though you say this violates your terms of service, we are going to tell, you know, step in as the government and say, your terms of service can't say that. You have to tolerate more speech. And in this case, it was far-right speech. Well, and, and it's not a coincidence that uh, the uh, Polish government is pretty far-right itself uh, uh, and has done a lot to, to, to take control of the judiciary. Um, so I'm not... Yeah. Although, you know, I, I think I might have misspoken there. It's, it's Germany and Italy where it's far-right organizations. Poland also has a reinstatement order, but that one it isn't a, a far right organization. So let, let me ask about transparency because this is, I, I, it seems to me, your experience uh, uh, with the nitty gritty of uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, takedowns uh, is valuable here. I, a lot of the transparency proposals here strike me as just totally bogus. Uh, the transparency reports that, uh, uh, for example, Google did uh, in the context of law enforcement uh, requests were um, uh, worth five minutes of read every six months, but not more. It just told you how many. And you could look at it and say, oh, look, uh, you know, uh, Section 702 requests are up 10 percent. I wonder what that means. And then you'd say, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so uh, it's something that said we get a lot of takedown requests and we honor this many and don't honor those, I, That that's not really – um, the kind of transparency that will lead people to say, huh, well, I guess they really were trying to, to do this right. We'd have to dig deep into specific decisions to, uh, to start to build uh, uh, or rebuild the trust that uh, people used to have in the platforms. Yeah, well, I don't want to discount the the value of the existing transparency reports, which I think are, you know, were a huge step forward. And there are a lot like the one Reddit put out recently was very nuanced and interesting. But the, the bottom line is they are aggregate data about how the platforms themselves characterize their decisions. Um, and so if what you're trying to figure out is... Uh, are they applying the law accurately? Did they take down the right thing or the wrong thing and how often? Or if what you're trying to figure out is a question about bias, like are they applying the rules unfairly against a particular group? The only way to look into that is to look at individual takedown decisions and see what particular piece of content came down on what basis. And so until there's some way for researchers to get access to that kind of information, there's a very high level of you know just trust us baked into the transparency report. I don't trust the I, a, I don't trust the researchers. They're all they're all from universities, and and, and they their biases are at <laughs> least as clear as the uh, the biases of the uh, content moderators. Uh, I I wonder if there doesn't have to be some kind of government mandate to uh, 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 enforce with subpoenas to uh, be sure that the data you're getting uh, is actual data that uh, the companies will stand behind. Well, uh, then you're aligned with French regulators. Um, who, who <laughs> oh, have... my God. Oh, you really – you know how to hurt me, Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's there's a really interesting proposal out of France. I, I don't think it's getting much political traction there, but it might uh, maybe at the EU level um, for a regulatory body to basically do exactly that. So say the, our first job here is to compel disclosure of enough information to even figure out what's going on. And only then should lawmakers, you know, set about trying to say what to do with online content. Um, and that would be information about what content is taken down, about algorithmic ranking, 
uh, et cetera. Um, but the, the, you know, there might be problems in the U.S. Uh, with again the First Amendment. You know, there was this Fourth Circuit case recently, um, Washington Post versus McManus, that struck down a disclosure requirement for platforms about campaign ads. Um, so mandating transparency is easier in Europe than here, much as mandating speech restriction is easier in Europe than here. Yeah, I, I you know, the First Amendment, it, it, the First Amendment has has kind of frozen shut on a lot of stuff that uh, it used to be more flexible about. Uh, um, I am struck by the um, the history of broadcast regulation. You know, when broadcasters came along in the twenties, they were a major threat to the established political figures and the uh, uh, the people who shaped discourse in particular locales, so mainly newspapers and political leaders. Uh, and the reaction to that may be justified, given uh, how much of a role broadcasting played in the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and FDR and Father Coughlin um, was to say, we need to make sure that the new authority these guys have isn't abused. They're going to have effectively monopolies uh, or close to it uh, uh, on the airwaves. uh, And we want to make sure that they don't end up imposing their views on the body politic. Uh, And a lot of the stuff that uh, was part of um, broadcast regulation and is still kind of in there from indecency to uh, fairness doctrine to um, equal time uh, uh, to uh, uh, the uh, uh, requirement that you're broadcast license be renewed every few years. All of those things were designed to bring to heal a bunch of actors, many of them very rich, whom we didn't want to have exercising too much control over our national dialogue until we knew um, how they were going to use that authority. And the courts backed up all of that. Uh, uh, Only after it started to fade did the, the courts start to say, oh, maybe there's a constitutional problem with this or that. Yeah, I think communications law is such a rich vein here, and I wish that more internet scholars and and lawyers would really delve into it. You know, it it has all this precedent for in case law and in just scholarship and economic thinking about this question of like, how do we handle private owners of massive communication channels when there's a tension between the rights of those companies as the owners of broadcast or cable or whatever, tension between the company's rights and the rights of the speakers who are trying to speak over the channels or the listeners who are trying to get information over the channels. How do we reconcile those two things? And so, as you say, communications law is just rich in things we've experimented with, with greater or lesser success, like the fairness doctrine or like the various things I I sort of put together in the paper under the rubric of must carry, which is a uh, it has a, a more granular meaning in communications law, but I think it's it's a useful shorthand for the things we're talking about in internet law. The the other one that jumps out at me that I would love to see more work on is unbundling, which in telecoms is the sort of idea that the the owner of the wire or cable going into your house might have to allow competitors to offer a service over that wire or cable. You know, there's this idea which I call the magic APIs or Mike Masnick writes about it as protocols, not platforms, which is that if we think Google or Facebook are sitting on this trove of data and content 
that their competitors are never going to be able to develop you know, a comparable resource, then maybe there's a, a model where they offer their version of the service, but they have to let competitors come along and offer a competing ranking algorithm or a competing set of moderation rules. And then as a user, you choose, well, I want the Disney flavor of Facebook, or I want the ACLU flavor of Google search results, or I want the ESPN version of Twitter. You know, or, or the Trump free network. Of, okay. <laughs> right. And any of those things. And th- there are a lot of problems with that idea. I'm not like pitching it as an answer, but it's just an example of what you know, rich ideas that we haven't even scratched the surface of talking about. Uh, there might be from the history of communications law for sorting out the, the issues we have today with internet platforms. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the reason we aren't drawing on those lessons is people in communications law generally have spent oh, 30 years making all of that regulatory apparatus seem uncool. Uh, and, 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 and complaining about it. And, and, you know, but I've gone back and thought about some of the complaints and the complaints are mainly that it produced this homogenized mush. People were afraid to take uh, firm stands on public issues and, uh, and a uh, court controversy. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it, it sounds kind of like a, a, the good old days now. Uh, and, and so it may be that what we need is a little more homogenization and mush, uh, in our social media. Um, uh, but if uh, you maybe, <laughs> I, I mean, it's also all of these translate to having a massively powerful government agency like the FCC. And, you know, the FCC was only regulating broadcast. But if this agency controls what you and I can say on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, it's reach into the speech rights of ordinary people in daily life just becomes much more pervasive. So any, you know, if you're worried at all about state regulation of speech or regulatory capture or any of those things, all these ideas should, you know, prompt those worries into high gear. Yeah, I, but there is a question, you know, I, are you more worried about Ajit Pai or are you more worried about what Mark Zuckerberg is going to do with uh, his power? And I, you know, that's, I think that's a close call. Because uh, Ajit Pai is not going to be there forever, but uh, Mark's going to be in tar- charge of Facebook forever. But I love your uh, – you, you obviously are skeptical about this when you call them magic a- I- APIs because you're you're suggesting that uh, Masnick has a view of how they will work that may have no connection to reality. Well, and I think Masnick and I kind of came up with this independently, so I, I did not mean it as a critique of him. Um, but, I, I called it magic APIs just because I think the technology to make this operate, to run a, you know, a bunch of different competing uh, you know, queries across the Facebook corpus or the Google corpus, that sounds pretty magical, although I'm, you know, I'm a believer. I, I bet it can be achieved somehow with a lot of work and a lot of resources. The, the other huge barrier to it is going to be privacy law. Um, you know, it's very hard to figure out, you know, under the GDPR, it's hard to even sort out how basic data portability is going to work when one user wants to migrate to a competing service. If you want to have lots of newcomer small companies get access to all of this data in order to offer competing services of flavors of Facebook, then you have a massive GDPR problem to solve. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, in some senses, the internet did this 
for news. I, I, I am struck when I read various blogs which aggregate the news that they are essentially playing a role for me that the editors of my paper used to play. They're saying, here are stories that you should follow because uh, I say so. Um, and I recognize, of course, there's bias in that. Uh, they, the, they, they think things that make Trump look good or bad uh, are stories that we should be paying a lot of attention to. But they have disaggregated. They've created a magic API for the news, which is now uh, reduced to a, 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 a kind of a dumb pipe. It's a, you know, it's a, or a dumb lake of news, and different people put their straws into different places and pull up different stuff. Um, a, and so it it's already happened in one area. You could imagine it happening with, say, YouTube, right, where people would say, "I will be your guide." to uh, YouTube. I will um, uh, monetize different things. I will uh, recommend different things. Uh, I, I, I will be the engine. And, uh, um, you know, YouTube can continue to store all of the, uh, uh, the videos that I am curating. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you think of it as like a internet network layers issue. Facebook and YouTube started out as very much edge platforms facing users and offering a service. And what we see now is people coming along and saying, hey, wait, I think you're more like infrastructure. You know, I think you are more like a foundation everyone needs to rely on in, enable, in order to offer another service layered on top of that. Uh, this is something Anne-Marie Bridey has written very intelligently about. You know, it's sort of, it's a compelling idea, except for the problem that simultaneously everyone or, you know, the press or the majority of people want YouTube to clamp down on content and get rid of offensive things and get rid of violent things and, and you know, be, become a st even stronger gatekeeper than they are today. Yeah. When you create a walled garden that is the entire internet, you become responsible for the entire internet. And that's the problem that these companies face. Uh, um, uh, it used to be we just said, yeah, that's the internet. Uh, and, and it used to be a joke that, uh, you know, I, are you really going to stay up late because somebody is wrong on the internet? Uh, <laughs> and now it turns out, yeah, you're going to stay up late and make, make sure Facebook takes them down. Mm-hmm. And and we know, you know, from legal notice and takedown systems in, in legal systems where the law says platforms are liable for users content and they have to take it down in order to avoid liability. There's this tremendous pattern of people abusing that and sending legal accusations to platforms in order to silence their competitors or their critics or people they disagree with. We get things like the government of Ecuador using spurious copyright notices to get rid of critical journalism. And platforms, unsurprisingly, are very motivated to just comply with these things because the safe course and the risk-averse course and the cost-avoiding course is, is to go ahead and take things down in most cases. And so, you know, we, we need to be very, very careful with any legal system that amps up that uh, government-based pressure to take down lawful speech in order to avoid risk. So do you think the DMCA, which is where all these copyright notice take down uh, uh, abuses come from, is the best guide to the kinds of abuses that we would see uh, in content moderation? Or it, was there something uh, unique about that that changes the reference? 
Uh, I think we should expect more abuse everywhere else. <laughs> you know, if we had if we had notice and takedown for defamation uh, or for content that invades people's privacy, and and that's just because you know the DMCA. Most of the people providing notices for that are professional organizations targeting piracy and, you know, actually illegal piracy exists on a pretty large scale. And so it's relatively professionalized and the scope of actually infringing content is, is relatively great. But I, I think if we had similar transparency about um, in countries that do have notice and take down for defamation and so forth, which is basically everywhere but the U.S., um, I think we would see a lot more false accusations or erroneous accusations. Oh, here's an example, actually. Google does transparency for um, right to be forgotten removal requests or delisting requests in Europe, which are legally mandatory. And they say that of the, I think, 2 million or so URLs they've been asked to take down, 55% of the time, the person did not actually have a legal right to get it taken down. So that the error rate they were seeing there was very high. But again, that's Google's self-reporting. If an independent expert looked at all of those requests, they might see some other pattern. Or it might be higher because Google has taken down, you know, people who've been convicted in the last 15 years of serious crimes like murder. Oh, but, you know, mm -hmm. he's a different man today, so take it down. Uh, so I, I'm guessing that it would be more like 75 or 80 percent of people who didn't, uh, at least by American standards, have a right to have it taken down. Well, I mean, by American standards, almost none I guess of them would right. have a right to take it down. So <laughs> there's a big difference yeah, here. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Uh, well, that takes us to the question of foreign governments deciding what uh, Americans can see and say. Um, uh, there's a a lot of um, uh, activity in this area, some of it from people we usually think of as our friends, like the Europeans. Uh, I, and uh, uh, your other uh, article on this, uh, Dolphins in the Net, talked about how um, European laws on defamation and right to be forgotten uh, were increasingly going to be applied Globally, um, you inspired me, I should say. Uh, the uh, defamation case is a woman named uh, uh, Glavishnig uh, Pischik, uh, uh, who was an Austrian Green Party politician who was uh, anonymously accused of being a corrupt oaf and a member of a fascist party. She thought that was defamatory and she asked for a global uh, takedown notice uh, uh, so that no American could call her a uh, corrupt oaf or a member of a fascist party. And the uh, uh, Court of Justice of the European Union, which is just insane on questions where they have an opportunity to display their anti-American bias, uh, said, yeah, that sounds fine to us. Uh, so I uh, I have posted on Facebook several uh, uh, things uh, that put my um, my account at risk. Uh, uh, here's one. Uh, the unspeakable European Court of Justice uh, recently ordered Facebook to engage in worldwide censorship of postings relating to Ms. Gavishnig's, uh, Pischik's, uh, uh Austrian Green uh, Party, uh, uh, where she was defamed, uh, in her uh, view, by a user who called her a corrupt oaf and a member of the fascist party. In theory, Facebook should be monitoring my posts and yours with some kind of filtering technology to make sure we don't offend Ms. 
Glavishnig's Pishik's delicate sensibilities, and I can't help wondering how that's working out. So I'll try a few posts to see. I have nothing to lose but my Facebook account. And then I made several posts that used her name increasingly close to accusing her of being a corrupt oaf and a member of a fascist party. Uh, uh, Facebook has not taken it down. Do you think this means they haven't yet begun to implement the uh, Austrian order uh, or are they exercising a certain uh, uh, reluctance to, to to take down what's obviously a joke uh, uh, posting? Uh, <laughs> well, to make the experiment really complete, you should get a friend in Austria to post the same thing. Of course, they would be engaging in defamatory speech. It's not just Ms. glavishnig Pichek who said this. It was the Austrian courts. So maybe you should get one of your enemies in Austria to, to post that um, since they, they might get in trouble. Hey, I can, I can, maybe that- I could ask Shrems to do it. <laughs> so I, I think they're kind of two part. First, let me back off and say to listeners, don't read this piece. The, the, this piece, the dolphins in the net piece is very much targeted to European legal expert readers. So if that's you, do read it. Otherwise, go read uh, something else. Uh, read, the, read, read the Who Do You Sue piece. It's overtaken by events, too, because now the <laughs> European court has, has said, uh, you know, Daphne Keller is a wonderful person, but uh, we don't agree at all with her. <laughs> You know, the the piece people should read is Build Your Own Intermediary Liability Law, A Kit for Policy Wonks of All Ages on Balkanization, which is like two and a half pages of what the dials and knobs are for these laws. But on, so on Glavishnik Pichak, it had, there are two big pieces to the ruling. One is it says, yeah, Austria can order Facebook to take this down globally. And the second is Austria can order Facebook to build an automated filter so that a machine detects when people say these things and then takes them down. Might be, you and might even that, call it a, a, a magic filter. <laughs> you, you might even call, that, call it that. And it certainly, like, it is magical thinking to think that a machine could accurately identify when a reuse of those phrases is illegal versus a reuse of those phrases being criticism or parody or news reporting or something totally unrelated to the case, um, filter can't tell them apart. And so the safe thing to do if you're Facebook complying with this order is to build a massively overbroad filter and take down too much. And so in, in to your question, Stuart, of are they implementing this yet? It's possible they already put some kind of filter in place, but only for Austria. You know, like maybe they are complying with the filtering part, but resisting with the global on the global enforcement piece, or maybe they are still trying to figure out what this order even requires because it's extremely vague in in the order in the case so far what it is they're supposed to be doing. Well, I have a long history of putting my Facebook account at risk. I I, I also, when I heard that uh, Facebook was uh, removing all links to Infowars.com uh, uh, and uh, we were, we were you know, treated to uh, uh, a lot of victimization speech uh, uh, from uh, uh, Infowars, uh, I put up a link. It's still there six months or a year later, right? So it, 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 uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is that some of these stories about how this is actually going to uh, work out may be exaggerated. Yes. 
Uh, on the other hand, in this case, because there was a court order, the plaintiff can come back and say, Facebook isn't complying. I can tell because look what Stuart Baker just posted. Ah, so, okay. Uh, uh, that should be exciting. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, what this means is there's this giant ratchet. Uh, everybody, every government but uh, the U.S. government is free from the First Amendment and can tell uh, uh, American companies what Americans can say and not uh, and hold them liable if Americans say the wrong thing. Uh, that creates immeasurable pressure on the American platforms to shut down certain kinds of American speech. Uh, um, and w if the US government thinks that's wrong and inconsistent with First Amendment values, uh, there's going to be a First Amendment fight about whether they can even tell uh, the platforms that they can't do that, uh, um, at least if you look at the Baidu decision. Yeah. So the – well, first of all, you know, I should say all of these governments, the democratic governments, do have speech protections. They're not the same speech protections we have. They balanced speech against other values in different ways. But it's, it's not that there's no restraint there. Um, but the the Baidu case, you know, with the possible exception of China. So let's talk about oh, Baidu. Oh, Turkey, um, <laughs> Russia. Come on. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. The the exception list is is longish. Um, so the the Baidu case is really interesting because it uh, was some democracy activists suing Baidu, which is China's biggest search engine, suing them in the U.S., saying Baidu has blocked our speech at the behest of the Chinese government, and this violates our rights. And the court said, uh, nope, actually, Baidu can do what it wants here for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is because of Baidu's own First Amendment rights. You know, it's a platform with First Amendment rights as a company, and it is choosing to exercise its editorial discretion by excluding this speech. And it doesn't matter that that discretion was prompted by the Chinese government. This is a First Amendment right. So plaintiffs, you know, go away. You, you can't force Baidu to carry your speech. Um, which is a sort of amazing <laughs> function of the First Amendment to become an it's instrument. It's frankly yeah. nutty, right? I, I mean, it, it might be the law, but if the law says that, then the law is an ass, as Mr. Dumble said. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there's got to be a way in which that kind of interference with the free speech rights of Americans can be called out and uh, disciplined. Uh, uh, but if we just sort of sit here and complain about it, that's never going to happen. Uh, uh, my, my latest idea, I, I think I mentioned this in an email, is Section 1983, 42 U.S.C. 1983, allows individuals to sue another sovereign, a, a state government, saying, you have interfered with my rights and privileges as a uh, – my privileges and immunities as an, uh, a, a citizen of the United States uh, and you owe me damages. I, I think it's at least plausible to say uh, uh, you can sue the government that uh, imposed those restrictions. You can sue the platform for conspiring with the government to foreclose uh, uh, your First Amendment rights. I think those are at least – plausible arguments. There's going to be a lawsuit like that. So then you will, the first step, I think, in your hypothetical is Congress acts, which is a helpful thing for plaintiffs, but not a surefire winner, because then you still have to get back past the platform's own First Amendment arguments. And that leads us back 
to the communications law cases. All whole roads in this area tend to lead back to these cases that are about things like cable and broadcast. Uh, with the court, and the, the question the, is: the Supreme Court has been willing several times to say we recognize that when a large player uh, takes actions that actually. Uh, disadvantage private speech or the speech of others that uh, their First Amendment rights have to give way or at least be compromised. Uh, so I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure the Baidu decision was right. It was just better lawyered uh, uh, on the uh, uh, side of the uh, uh, of Baidu. Um, but I, I think if you went to the Supreme Court and said, we had to do this because otherwise uh, you wouldn't be able to say anything that the uh, uh, Russian uh, and Chinese governments disapproved of, uh, that that would carry some weight. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. And I think some, some version of a must carry question will get to this court. Um, but, you know, we already had Halleck this this last year, which was a must carry case about cable uh, written opinion from Justice Kavanaugh saying, no, we can't require this private company to carry speech. It doesn't want to. And we have a very interesting decision. It's a dissent, actually, from Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit on a net neutrality case where he said even ISPs should have a First Amendment right to exclude whatever content they want from the services they they deliver you know, from from the internet, and so we we have him Justice Kavanaugh setting a very high bar for when it is that the government can come in and say to a private company, you have to carry speech that you don't want to. And the way he's framed the previous cases is all about competition. He, he says that cases like Turner were driven by competitive concerns and, and for the government to be able to compel a company to carry speech, they'd have to basically be able to make out a competition case. But your, your scenario is different. Your scenario is a foreign inter interference you know, fact pattern. And I agree, it would be very interesting to see how that played out. So a last question, because we could go on forever and persuade everybody, everybody <laughs> who's listening that we absolutely <laughs> ought to separate any interview involving Daphne Keller from the news uh, 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 roundup. Uh, but I, so what would it take? What kind of shocking development would it take to get Congress to decide to um, act against these sorts of uh, speech interfering uh, activities on the part of foreign governments. Oh gosh, uh, I, I assume it has to be one where they they try to intervene in a partisan way and therefore make enemies of the entire party they're acting against. But of course, that's not, hmm. it's only one of the two. <laughs> they probably make friends on the other side of the aisle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the question of what would it take for Congress to take action uh, is, is evergreen. Uh, I mean, my my worry in this space generally is that there's a lot of room for intelligent regulatory intervention for you know competition laws and privacy laws, but those are really hard to draft and really hard to to move politically. And what is easy to sort of get traction for is something vaguely attack attacking platforms via Section 230. And so uh, I worry that we will see this sort of constellation of really legitimate concerns about platform regulation lead to political energy that is unwisely targeted toward um, hasty revisions of, of that law, of Section 230, which is this key immunity. You used a phrase, Stuart, earlier about a uh, 
rules being made by people who your phrase was know nothing and are making decisions at the last minute. Um, and I think we are we are likely to see a lot of that in platform speech regulation law, unfortunately. Yes, but uh, look, uh, the the companies that would be regulated in this fashion have hired practically every lobbyist in Washington, and they get great uh, advice about what how bad it will be for them uh, if uh, uh, certain things happen. Uh, and they that means they can step in at any point and say, "Oh, you know, you you want to regulate that this thing? Your regulation sucks, but we have an alternative." structure that would work. Um, and, and so if, if you get them scared enough, they probably will come up with something that makes more sense than some of the ideas that are floating around now. There's something that makes sense for them. At yeah, the phrase, well, right? yes. I mean, this gets, <laughs> this gets back to the same problem we were talking about before, where giant tech companies negotiate with, with government and who's left out in the cold is users and their smaller competitors. So I, you know, I, I worry about that scenario also. All right. Daphne, this was terrific. I, I had an enormous amount of fun. We'll bring you back uh, uh, next time you write something, uh, although probably that balkanization piece uh, doesn't count. It's too, too short. Uh, <laughs> too short. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, thanks to you. Thanks to Matthew Hyman, to Mark McCarthy, to Nick Weaver. Uh, this has been episode 302 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, don't forget the poll, steptoe.com slash podcast poll. We're going to keep it open through the end of this month. Send your comments about the uh, uh, show or suggestions for people we ought to have on to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if your guest comes on, you will get a coveted uh, uh, Cyberlaw Podcast mug, which we are mailing to you, Daphne, uh, as we speak. Uh, Sweet. Uh, and uh, please join us once again as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.